Cinema Journal presents Media. I am Christine Becker. And I am Michael Kackman. And we are very far apart right now. I don't know how many thousands of miles. I've, I don't know if I've ever felt so far apart. <laughs> yes, we've never, we've literally never been that far apart. Nope. And, and we're also eight hours apart. Yep. Uh, we are, neither of us are in the uh, command post. We are instead on different continents and in vastly different time zones. Yeah, so this should sound really weird to people. Yeah, yeah, you can just you can almost hear the 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 slight pinging echo uh, as as we bounce off. I don't know, like Sputnik debris or something. <laughs> this is, I mean, frankly, this is kind of amazing. Then, it's, technologically speaking, we you know we dialed up Skype and here we are, and now we're recording our little bits, and we're going to put it all together, and it's magic. It's it media magic. It is. Uh, so, how is London, which is where you London are now? is. Great. Yes. I'm uh, to fill listeners in during the fall semester. I'm going to be teaching for Notre Dame's London program. And because I could, I decided to come here a little bit early. So I got here in mid-July and I'll be here for the rest of the year. And it is lovely. It is amazing. It is the, you know, I'll never live this great again. I'm, I'm living in central central London. And in fact, right across the street from the BFI IMAX theater, we just went to see Dunkirk. Wow. And then I was home like, 120 seconds later, it was it was great. That's pretty good. So, um, it, what was it like watching Dunkirk in the UK? It's uh, well, spectacular as far as the visual experience. Um, unfortunately, I'm prone to motion sickness, so the the plane parts, I had to close my eyes through some of those, which is not, I'm sure, how Christopher Nolan wants you to watch, right? He insists it has to be an IMAX 70 millimeter, oh, and no. he doesn't say anything about closing your eyes, so. I didn't see it probably how he intended, but the parts where I had my eyes open were spectacular. <laughs> I think that's the oh, and then line. and then speaking of watching it in England, here's a bizarre fun fact. You know, they run uh, a bunch of advertisements beforehand. There was an ad for I kid you not, Illinois. There was an Illinois tourism ad. No way. You know, it starts no, it starts running these images, and it, it up, took me a little while to realize they were all uh, from Illinois. You know, because I saw <clears throat> you know they have some downtown Chicago and. Chicago Cubs, because initially it looked to be an ad for an America, which I thought, okay, fine. An ad for Illinois. What? That is that is some serious, like, uh, <laughs> Illuminati-grade social media <laughs> targeted advertising or something. Yeah. Well, like, Illinois, of course, notoriously has budget problems. What are they doing spending money running, an, a, you know, an ad for Illinois? Before I think they want you to come home. <laughs> I think so. So that was, frankly, even more stunning than Dunkirk was the wow. the Illinois trailer. Okay, so those are my two takeaways. One, um, the parts where your eyes were open were pretty good. <laughs> and two, uh, it took second place to the uh, Illinois ads. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, we should be doing movie reviews more yeah. often because yeah. I think we're really giving our listeners a lot, yeah, a you're, lot of value there's, here. There's a lot of material somebody could take away from that. Yeah, look forward to more of my reviews from London of, <laughs> of movies and whether or not you should see them and, and ads for Illinois. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing Dunkirk at some point. In all seriousness, it, it visually spectacular. And, and I see what people mean when they say you have to see it in 70 millimeter and, and IMAX specifically. Um, you know, I'm curious to see what gets lost in the image in a standard uh, aspect ratio because, um, yeah, it, it filled my eyes. Okay, there it is. 
So we have uh, a summer episode of Acomedia here with uh, a couple of pieces to fill in some gaps. and Yeah, well, we have a little bit. Uh, Bill Kirkpatrick, one of our producers, described this as kind of akin to a summer rerun episode, um, but not like wasting, you know, summer burn-off kind of thing. No, like, um, a, like a very special summer rerun. Right, exactly, because we are going to rerun an interview we did in 2014, actually, that Bill did. Uh, with SCMS uh, then-conference programming chair Angelo Restivo about how papers and panels are selected. So we figured this would be really useful. The SCMS deadline for Toronto next year is coming up at the end of August, I believe August 31st. I hope that's Probably correct. Probably the case, yeah. Uh huh. And so we thought, you know, people have got about a month then to uh, to figure out um, how to put together a proper proposal to get accepted into SMS. So you might be uh, benefit from rehearing what Angelo Restivo had to say. Um, and he says not much has changed, of course, uh, since 2015, except for the addition of the seminar, the new one role rule. But so we thought this rerun of Angelo Restivo would help people prepare their proposals. So a public service. Very good. And then we're going to have a chance to listen to another entry in the SCMS field notes, which you yeah. have been taking care of. Yeah, uh, if, you, if you haven't, to our listeners, if you haven't looked up the lo- roster of field notes interviews now, there's a, a, a spectacular uh, growth in them. They did a bunch of them at SCMS, uh, Boardwell Thompson get in there. Uh, but I picked up the one with Lynn Spiegel. So Elena Levine interviewed Lynn Spiegel, and I'm such a huge fan of her work. So I was just dying to hear this interview. Um, so we have prepared an excerpt of that. You're just going to get about half of it, and you'll be able to listen to the rest of it on the field notes website. Um, so that will be our second segment. All right. Well, let's give a listen first up to uh, Bill and Angelo. All right. Hi, I'm talking to Angelo Restivo. Angelo Restivo is associate professor in the Department of Communication at Georgia State University. And he is also a member of the board of directors of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies and chair of the program committee for SCMS. This year. This year, okay. Uh, Angelo, welcome to Acomedia. Well, thank you, I'm, I'm glad to be here. So in preparation for the conference coming up in March, we just wanted to chat with you a little bit because I know a lot of our members are interested in and have questions about exactly how does the process work. We send in our submissions in August and then you know several months later we get a yes or a no and then a month or two after that we get a slot on a program and uh, so the whole thing seems like a black box that we hope you can illuminate for us. Oh, sure. First of all, in our in our spring board meeting or at our spring board meeting, we put together a program committee and the program committee this time had 22 members. So we ended up with 11 reading pairs. It turns out that each reading pair will get assigned somewhere around 120 to 130 either open call proposals or panel proposals. For the open call proposals, we divide them up according to the categorizations that the author of the proposal gives to us. We have the uh, divisions, aesthetics, philosophy, auteur genre, social political critique, technology, industry, historical, archival, and audience. And so each of those different areas will go to a different reading pair. 
the thing is, though, that for social and political cr critique, we always get about three times the number that we do in the other categories. So, for example, we had somewhere around 360 social political critique open call proposals, whereas in the other categories, they averaged around 120. So we have three reading groups for social political critique, but for the others, we have one. Then we have three reading groups for the uh, pre-constituted panels because we got about, well, this time we got about 347 pre-constituted panel proposals, so that added up to about uh, between 110 and 120 per reading group there. So the actual workload is heavy for these people who are volunteers. I mean, this is all volunteer work. but it's it Sounds pretty, like a ton of work. Yeah, it's a ton of work, and it's um, pretty evenly divided, and so in general, you know, we try to put together reading pairs whose work interfaces with that particular area as well as we can so that we have, you know, people who are pretty expert in the area reading. Uh, now, for the, for the pre-constituted panels, since we don't divide those up into areas, um, we have to rely on the kind of like general knowledge of all of our volunteer readers to be able to handle those. But even there, I as program chair will steer certain preconstituted proposals to one reading pair and others to another reading pair, depending on what I know of the expertise of the group. Are the proposals anonymous, or do the readers actually know the people who are submitting them? Uh, we know the names of all of the submitters. What we do is we we go through and make sure that there are, there are no conflicts of interest, like someone having to evaluate their spouse's proposal. But besides that, there's a, a sense that, you know, once the names are there, everyone, especially everyone on the board, knows everyone else uh, in the field to the extent that everybody is going to get assigned proposals from people whose work they know, who they socialize with at SCMS, and so on. So that's kind of inevitable, and we just have to assume that there's going to be a certain you know, level of, well, a high degree of professionalism involved in when you accept the, the job of evaluating. Could you say a little bit about what reviewers are looking for? And we could frame it as a kind of public service announcement. Here's how to improve the chances of your proposal getting uh, accepted. Sure. And I think that there are some criteria that go across the board. And then there are others that are specific to, for example, pre-constituted panels. To begin with, though, is there a clear ar argument? You know, a pretty obvious one there. Is it situated well within the existing literature? And is it making an original contribution to the field? Now, it's really interesting. One year, I think it was two years ago, we eliminated for that one year the bibliographic requirement that you put in bibliographical sources on your proposal. And we quickly the next year reinstated it because we found out how valuable it was. So that, for example, um, if a proposal is making an argument in an area where scholars X and Y have made really important contributions in the last two years and we don't see it anywhere in the proposal nor in the bibliography, then that would raise a red flag. So the bibliographic listing for your proposal is really an important piece. Now, with pre-constituted panels, 
you know, we're looking for those strong individual paper uh, proposals, but we're also looking for a through line in the panel. Is the panel itself making a clear argument or intervention rather than being just a potpourri of essays about X? So we want to see the overarching panel proposal telling us something broader that the four papers are all engaging with in various ways, but not just summarizing those four papers. And then with workshops, we're looking for topics that clearly benefit from the workshop format. And we really do expect the proposal to make it clear how the workshop is going to exploit the format. Because sometimes we get workshop proposals that are really panels in disguise. Those are going to get declined. So as I say, every reading group is, consists of two people who read every proposal that they're reading independently and rank it on a score of one to five. The idea here is that a 3.5 average is automatically going to get programmed. A three is kind of like a score that a reader would give if he or she is unsure about the originality or the coherence or whatever of the proposal. So the 3.5s and higher get programmed. After that, we end up with probably 70 or 75 panel slots that are still open. And that's when the program chair goes in and looks at the threes. Because a three isn't necessarily going to be a bad proposal. It's just going to be one that fell in the middle. So the program chair at that point will go in and look at the threes and start programming the best panels and the best open call papers out of those. How frequently is, are there vast differences between the ratings that the two readers give to the same panel? Well, part of what I, I do as program chair or any program chair does is set out instructions and guidelines for the reading pairs. And one of the things I say is, it's going to happen eventually that you're going to have a 1-5 split. This is why you need to have Skype conversations or phone calls after you've been ranking for a while because I want you to resolve those 1-5 splits so that you're both on the same wavelength in terms of how you're evaluating. So they'll begin to see certain discrepancies come up and then they'll have a phone call or a Skype conversation in order to reconcile the way that they're doing the ranking and you know re-rank if necessary. I think that by the end of the process, everybody's criteria are more or less standardized. In terms of numbers, do you have from the scheduler, do you have here are the number of slots we have, give me that many panels? Or do you say to the scheduler, this is how many panels we can create out of the submissions that we have? Uh, yeah, that you're, you're raising a good point. First of all, I should stress, there's no uh, kind of like rubric that you're supposed to get 20% fives or 20% ones. There are no targets. And the number of panels that we can run really depends on the the hotel space and the number of rooms we can get, uh, you know, as well as the number of days we're running the conference, which I assume is going to become something we'll talk about later. It just happens, it's happened that there's been a nice synergy so that we've been able to accept all 3.5 and higher rank proposals and end up with a surplus of about 75 to 80 panel slots, which is really good because then we're able to go in and look at 
the various proposals that are in the middle and get the best ones programmed. So one of the questions that comes up quite frequently, and you sort of hinted at it just a minute ago, the question of four or five days for the conference. It was four days. We've expanded it to five days. That means more people have an opportunity to present, but it also means that there are greater challenges for individual scholars to attend the entire conference. Uh, It means that perhaps the conference is spread a little more thinly. What are your thoughts on that? And what are the program committees and the board's thoughts on that four versus five days? Yeah. Now, this has been a subject that, you know, the board has constantly had to wrestle with. You know, remember that the five-day conference was originally an experiment, and we did it in L.A. for the 50th anniversary because we had to accommodate the papers from the previous year's disaster in Tokyo. And that was the rationale there for moving it to five days. But then we kept it experimentally, and so far we've been feeling like it works. Now, we know that it drags out the conference, that the conference can be grueling at five days. But in terms of the argument that uh, if it's four days, you can see the whole conference, well, with 24 to 26 panels going on at any one time, you know, no matter how many days it is, you're constantly aware of the fact that you're only seeing a fraction of what's out there. You can't do anything about it. And if we moved it to four days, I don't think that would resolve that problem. It might mean that people could be there for the entire duration of the conference, but I don't see that there's that much of a a distinction in terms of, you know, missing or not missing papers that you want to see. The downside at this point, I think, and I'm speaking for myself here, our acceptance rates are getting lower and lower as percentages every year across the board. And this is because our submissions are increasing, I wouldn't say exponentially, but since 2008 in Philadelphia, our total numbers of submissions have nearly doubled. And this is in every single category, workshops, open call, pre-constituted. So that means, for example, that just from last year Chicago to this year Seattle, our pre-constituted acceptance rates go on from 83% to 76%. Our open call has gone from 61% to 54%. Given that as a professional organization, we really want to offer our members as much opportunity as we can for them to present their work, I think that going back to four days is really going to make the rates of decline papers and panels skyrocket, and it's not going to be good for the organization or our members, people who are on the tenure track, who need need to be at conferences, graduate students, who need to make connections. So, Now, some societies have, instead of abstract submissions, they have full paper submissions. And clearly, that would increase the workload. Has there been discussion about using the SIGs more or the caucuses more to pre-vet papers? Um, Okay, well, it seems like those are two separate issues, because the whole paper issue is one issue, and that hasn't really been discussed that much during my time on the board. However, having SIGs and caucuses involved in the vetting of proposals or solicitation of proposals has been. It's It's been a perennial topic. So far, we've said no. Everyone, you know, on the board loves the energy and, you know, vitality that the SIGs and caucuses bring. There's a sense, though, that 
the conference as a whole is a conference of our organization as a whole, and that it would be kind of balkanizing to have subgroups of the conference end up programming what might end up to be mini-conferences within the conference kind of thing. The idea here was that anybody in any area should be able to make clear to whoever the readers are the value of their work to the field. And that makes the the conference a, a conference for and about all of us, and it doesn't sort of like reify certain specializations. But the other thing is, the board has always said, we rely on volunteers to be on the program committee. And we would love to have people in the SIGS and caucuses volunteer to be members of the program committee. And if they are, then they're probably going to get channeled to be reading proposals in the areas that, that they're involved with in their SIG. So... There was a recent post by Jason Mattel talking about some of the ideas that he has for the SCMS conference. And one of the big ones that caused a lot of discussion was the idea of eliminating the open call. The open call, on the one hand, allows more opportunity for junior scholars and those without uh, strong social networks across institutions to get their papers in. But it does add to the volume of papers. It adds to the length of the conference, perhaps. What sorts of discussions have happened around the question of open open calls versus pre-constituted panels. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with Jason's post, and I appreciate his desire to get the best conference that we can. In terms of eliminating open call, that has never been anything that the board, as far as I know, has thought about. I think the open call is important not only for junior scholars, but graduate students as well. I remember presenting at SCMS and all the way through my doctoral studies. Now, you could argue that if we eliminated the open call, that might force more of our members to engage in scholarly exchange before the conference, for example. And in fact, I think you had mentioned the high rate of acceptances in pre-constituted panels. I think the reason why the, the rates are higher there than they are in open call is simply because this collaboration beforehand constitutes a kind of peer review that happens before it even gets to the readers and the conference programmers. You know, that's a plus, but a part of the beauty of open call is that it puts people who might not have been aware of each other's uh, work into contact. And you'd be surprised at the number of senior scholars who submit to open call. I think the standard wisdom is that they all do preconstituted panels or are respondents. They get asked to be respondents and so on. But we get a number of open call proposals from senior scholars. You know, the other argument that I heard, and I think Jason made this argument, is that the open call leads to artificial panels. You know, like recent developments in media studies kind of thing. But this is true only in a fraction of the panels that we form from open call. You know, the program committee works really hard to put together coherent panels. And I would challenge people to go through the program and try to pick out which panels were created from open call and which were pre-constituted. I bet they would be wrong half the time. And I think part of it is because, you know, 
in a field like ours, there are certain questions, there are certain methodologies, there are certain texts that are just on the table at any particular moment or in any particular year, so that there, you're, you're going to be able to put together coherent panels out of open call papers. I, I know for a fact that we have a panel on Zero Dark Thirty, which was just a text that garnered a lot of attention and we got a lot of open call proposals there. Um, that's just one example, but um, our reading pairs work hard to put together really interesting panels, and for the most part, the open call papers are really placed well. Now, it's such a complicated jigsaw puzzle to put together this schedule that, yes, at the end of the line, we end up with 12 14, 16 open call papers floating around and we can't figure out how to fit them anywhere. So yes, there is going to be, again this year, a recent developments in media studies panel, but it's a fraction of the panels that get put together uh, through open call. I think one more question then, the issue of publishing the abstracts. One common complaint, and in fact, I'll confess it's been one of my complaints, has been trying to determine what's the best use of your time based solely on the title of the talk or the reputation of the scholar or what have you. It seems like the technology should be available, hitting send and, and uploading stuff. I'm guessing it's more complicated than that. Well, I know this is a subject that's been taken up by the board in the years before I got on the board. And I think there are two issues involved, and one of them is logistical. Building the infrastructure to do it, but even more importantly, having the personnel to put the time required to get everything online, I think, is one issue. But that's probably not a deal breaker. Although, do remember that most of the work that's done for us is volunteer. But I think the, the other thing, there's a feeling that some scholars might not feel comfortable putting not yet published original work online. Perhaps, you know, if we ended up wanting to move in that direction in the future, we'd want to probably get a feeling or a sense from the members. And I know it's probably going to be split because there are some people who are totally involved in open access publishing and others aren't. So, I mean, I think it's a, a delicate road to negotiate. I hear that I'm, I'm more invested in the open side. I think that abstracts are useful and helpful to people and you know they will be presenting the talk after all but even perhaps an opt-out possibility okay we will uh, publish all the abstracts unless you take some sort of action to opt out yeah what, what sorts of possibilities there might be something for the again for the members to let the board know about sure i think i think it would be but again i can't speak for the board on that issue i'm just sort of like summarizing what has gone on in the past so are there any other issues or concerns or just sort of interesting bits and pieces of this that we haven't talked about that you think the members and the listeners might be interested in? Maybe, maybe one of the things that we didn't talk about is some trends. One of the things that's great about being on the program committee is you get a really broad picture of what's going on in the field. And of course, this is going to be impressionistic. But it seems to me that, to quote Barb Klieger from last year, there's a lot of attention to the M and SCMS, and that's increasing. One of the things that was really striking to me was sound studies, where for a long time, sound studies was kind of like the under-theorized element of our field. And I've, 
I saw so many open call and pre-constituted papers and panels dealing with sound, voice, noise, that it was, it was very heartening. We also seeing increased work in video games, digital culture, you know, as well as the areas that you would expect us to cover, you know, very well from our history, like international cinemas and so on. Uh, I think that the program is very exciting this year, and Seattle is a great town, so I'm looking forward to seeing everybody. I hope that people that I don't know will come up and shake my hand uh, and say hi. So, Angelo, thank you again for the work that you do and also to the readers who volunteer their time. I know it's a huge task going through these hundreds of submissions. And uh, thank you as well for explaining it to the listeners of Acamedia. Well, thank you. I, I was really happy to have the chance to talk to our members about the process. And, and I really want to thank the membership of SCMS for being such an incredibly smart group of people, <laughs> the people who make our conference what it is. Toronto, city of tower and dome, millions of people calling it home, so many villages playing a part. Toronto, the good city with heart. All right, hopefully you heard something in there to spark your uh, proposal to make it the best ever and get into SCMS Toronto. Yeah, and if um, if you're not entirely sure if it's exactly your best ever, we can have Chris Becker review it from London. Um, yes. With a pint and um, in 70 right. millimeter with her eyes closed. Right, yeah. I won't have my eyes open for the whole thing, but at least part of it. Uh, yeah. And I'll, I'll let you know. And I'll, uh, and I'll let you know a lot about what I think of the surroundings around your proposal, too. Yeah, because that's very important. Context is everything. It is. All right. Uh, so good luck with those proposals. Those yeah, we. Uh, yeah, fingers crossed for everybody. We want everybody to get in. Uh, the bigger, the better. That's not what SCMS thinks, but that's what I just said. So yeah, it'll we'll be like the the Dunkirk evacuation. Get everybody <laughs> off the beaches. Oh my goodness. Okay, we're we're doing great here. Um, yeah. this really is summer. Yeah. Um. Well, let's turn to, let's let Lynn Spiegel save us, um, or actually let Elena Levine save us. She sat down with Lynn Spiegel at the last SCMS, uh, the one in Chicago. And so uh, they spoke for an hour, and to keep within Acamedia running time, I edited it together. And so let me give you just a quick preview of the, the chunks uh, that I included here. Um, so you're going to hear the uh, her early days in grad school, her dissertation, and, and the formation of Make Room for TV, which is really fun stuff. Uh, then it'll jump ahead to the founding of Consoling Passions, the story of its name even, um, and a little bit about SCMS not allowing TV, or I should say SCS not allowing TV. Um, then we hear about her book, TV by Design, and really great stuff on archival research. And then uh, finally, her most recent work on TV snapshots, pictures that people uh, take of themselves in history with television sets. Um, and then finally, ending with TV that Lynn Spiegel loves. Um, one quick note, uh, one of the two uh, here has a bad mic. There's moments of static. So just to let you know, it's not, uh, it's not your ear. It's uh, in the original recording, but it's not that bad. So sorry for that, but it's, it's there. Just blame it on the ack-ack fire. There you go. Okay. Let's listen. Which sounds great in 70 millimeter, by the yeah. way. They had a preview for uh, Star Trek. The No, sorry, sorry. Star Wars, The Last Jedi. And it sounded great. Yeah, it's just like Mike Pops. Here we go. Welcome to this Field Notes interview. 
I am Elena Levine, professor in the Department of Journalism, Advertising, and Media Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And today I'm interviewing Lynn Spiegel, professor and Francis E. Willard Chair of Screen Cultures in the Northwestern University School of Communications, Department of Radio, Television, Film. Today is Friday, March 24th, 2017, and we're here in Chicago, Illinois, at the Fairmont Hotel for the SEMS Conference. Professor Spiegel is well known for her work in American television and cultural history, feminist media studies, and the intersections of television and modern art. Her first book, Make Room for TV, Television and the Family Ideal in Postwar America, initiated a scholarly turn toward cultural histories of television that placed questions of gender, space, and domesticity at the center of the field. Her edited volumes, including Welcome to the Dream House, Popular Media, and Postwar Suburbs, which brought together 10 of her most influential essays, have also been important influences. Her next book, TV by Design, Modern Art and the Rise of Network Television, has brought yet another crucial intervention by demonstrating in careful detail the interwoven histories of American network TV and the world of modern art, helping us to think about the deep connection between cultural realms often assumed to be wholly distinct. She continues to pursue her groundbreaking research on television and other media, technologies, domestic space, and everyday life in her most recent work. I'm so happy to be talking with her today about her many contributions to our field. So Lynn, I'd like to start by talking about some of your earliest influences. Um, what role did television or film play in your early life? Is there something in your childhood and adolescence <laughs> that leads your path towards um, the scholarly uh, direction it follows? Yeah, I mean, I think I've talked about this a number of times, but I grew up in a TV household and that my father owned a TV store and was a TV repairman. And I think when I started writing my dissertation, which became Make Room for TV, I, I didn't, it didn't dawn on me the kind of edible <laughs> connection <laughs> for about a year. You know, and I was like, oh, gee. So um, obviously that must have had some kind of deep relation to why I wrote that dissertation. Although when I went to graduate school, it wasn't initially to study TV. Well, let's turn to that yeah. then. So tell me about your initial decision to, to go to graduate school at UCLA and kind of what you were thinking you were studying, going to study and yeah. how your path diverged from there. Well, when I was an undergraduate, I was like a joint studio art and English major. And this is in the late 70s, and there weren't very many film programs. But I was at school at SUNY Buffalo, which had this thriving media arts, video art context. So I did take film classes there, and I think I got very interested in that. Um, but then I took some time off for several years and just went to San Francisco and actually ran a gallery there and worked at this magazine called Coevolution Quarterly, which came out of the whole Earth Catalog. So that was like this whole interesting other world. Um, and I think, you know, like many 20-somethings, it was like just kind of, I always wanted to be a professor, I think, from the day I got to school at Buffalo. So I, you know, continued to take film classes at Berkeley and SF State when I lived there and just decided film was something I was really interested in. And I went to UCLA thinking I would study Nazi cinema. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> I really had a conversion. <laughs> what was that process? How did you go from that? Well, I was really interested in New German cinema when I was in San Francisco. And um, 
I don't know. I had a German boyfriend and went and lived in Germany, and he lived right near Leni Riefenstahl. So being a silly 20-something, I decided to go look at all the Riefenstahl and mountain films at the archives there. And then I even went so far as to think I could talk to her. So I went to her house, because she lived near my boyfriend's house, and knocked on the door. <laughs> And her maid said, she is scuba diving. (laughs) um, At any rate, I, like, went to UCLA shortly after that, thinking I would continue doing German cinema and was really interested in it, but somehow wound up writing a TV thesis on game shows. So (laughs) that was the end of me. Wow. So that was your your master's thesis was on game shows. Oh, okay. Interesting. (laughs) Um, What specifically were you looking at? Well... Yeah, no, UCLA was really a film theory school in those days, mm-hmm. so it was kind of odd to study TV, but there was one professor who wasn't there very long who was teaching TV named Kathy Montgomery, who wrote this book, very good book, called Target Primetime. I know that yeah. book. I love that book. Yeah, so, I so, you know, I kind of taught TV, the undergrad TV class with her, and so she was influential around that. But I was actually working with Nick Brown, who became interested in TV during this period, and he had hired me as his research assistant to go to studio audiences around town. And um, a lot of them were game shows. And then I just started, I worked at the UCLA archives, so I started like taping madly game shows off air. And so how did you get from that early turn towards looking at game shows and just starting to think about TV to the dissertation project? I mean, that's a, it's a good question because so many graduate students are just like, what am I going to, what's my idea? What right. am I going to write about? And I think, you know, obviously there was some kind of natural evolution from the writing about television. The game show thing was like actually used a lot of narrative theory about kind of, you know, reading Bard and hermeneutics and mixing that with Marx and questions of commodity culture, right? So more than anything writing that, I kind of taught myself you know, how to write a long project and kind of thinking about how to write about television. But then the following year in my PhD, I started this, I really did start Make Room for TV the first year of my PhD, because I was first going to write a seminar paper on how TV sets were advertised. And then I went to the library and um, was looking for ads. You know, we didn't have YouTube or (laughs) or digital ad archives. So I went to the old library and the stacks, and I decided I, you know, just looked through books of magazines, which were in the stacks still those days. And as luck will have it, being small, I started on the lower shelves, and they were the women's magazines. So it was serendipity as archival research. <laughs> but then, like, when I looked in those, I realized, oh, there's this whole other world. It's not just ads. It's, like, this whole series of debates and questions mm-hmm. about television and women. Yeah. I love that, that it com- came. It really came from the source. Right? Yeah. You know, it came from yeah. the materials leading you to the Well, I think it's so questions. important. I always tell students you should not go to archives totally knowing what you're looking for because mm-hmm. it will find you if you're keep your eyes open you know yeah so what was the kind of intellectual climate at UCLA in terms of you turning to look at things like women's magazines and talking about television was that something that your 
fellow graduate students were doing as well, or were you sort of this person doing the strange thing that nobody else was doing? I would say the strange thing no one else was doing. And it was scary a bit because, um, I mean, I had a lot of support because one of my teachers, Janet Bergstrom, was the editor of Camera Obscura, and she and Connie Penley invited me to be on Camera Obscura, so of course that was like an amazingly lucky thing for an MA student to find themselves doing, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so through that door, I got interested in kind of feminist theory and history, but it was all Laura Mulvey gays, who, of course, who doesn't love Laura Mulvey? So <laughs> clearly that was really influential. But, um, you know, it was a kind of approach that was really different from looking at TV. So, you know, and as I, I just kind of started thinking about homes and architecture, because as a little girl, I'd go out, when I think back, it's more memory reconstruction here, when I, I go out with my father on these kind of TV repair calls, and I do remember vividly, like, sitting in these homes that were better than mine, and they had these beautiful bay windows in Long Island, you know, and I would kind of sit there and think about their decor. So when I looked in those magazines, it really kind of sparked this whole kind of memory of the mise-en-scene of everyday life in a way, which again, maybe at the time, I was just developing those ideas. So I kind of went outside of the realm of my department's offerings and started looking in the architecture library, you know, mm -hmm. and thinking about how to kind of approach TV in it. Because it, it just seemed to me that approaching TV through film theory was just not going to work, at least then. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and there weren't that many people talking about TV. Yeah. I mean, I do think the work on visuality and the gaze was really important, clearly, always, to looking at TV. But, like, the textual approach to TV, at least at that point, I mean, things have really changed now. It just seemed like kind of a dead end. So what about that moment of the kind of coming together of Consoling Passions as this collective when you were working with other scholars and getting the conference initially off the ground? Can you tell us about that? Well, it started just as a, an idea that Lauren Rabinovitz and I had. Um, and then we asked Mary Beth Horalovich and Jane Fewer if they wanted to do it. So we all kind of then formed it. And I don't think we thought it would last. Uh, you know, like we had... The first conference at Iowa, Lauren did it, um, and then I did one at USC a couple of years later, and then it just kept going, you know. So it's kind of been, you know, again, you don't really know when you start things <laughs> that, where they're going to go. When you started the conference, um, what kind of a space were you trying to carve out, or how was it? Just what a was place, sort of SCMS wouldn't allow TV in it, so... I mean, the first year I was at Madison, there was this petition going around in the field about whether or not to change the name of SCMS, which you might know about. You know, it's kind of historic. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of reaction against allowing TV in or, you know, anything. So when media was allowed in, that was like, you know, a new world, right? Right. But it's still not TV. Uh, yeah, so. that was going to be my next night. It's still not TV. Because <laughs> digital media is okay about TV. Yeah. So, um, and the crappiest digital media or films are okay about TV. So, and even though now people think TV is like brilliant, 
eighth golden age of television. <laughs> There's just something about the whole word in academia, which still has that stigma, you know. So, so Consoling Passions was like, you know, really there for a space for people to think about TV from a position that wasn't just like the mass composition. It had been mostly studied through a more humanities position that was informed by film studies. Do you remember who came up with the name? Um, me. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think Say I'm more. embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> Say more about that. When? What, what was that? I think about? it was Lauren and me talking, but I do remember it was like, I, it was, it's probably a goofy name, isn't it? Yeah. It's a goofy name, but it's here. It's it kind of worked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it seems so very much of that moment yeah. in some ways, but it's, it's, it's with us now. It, yeah, I think it, it, my memory is it's like the two of us talking and I like said it and then we thought, well, should we try this out? And other people said, okay. I don't think, I don't think that story's been told before that, how you... Well, ask Lauren, she might, you know, memory is a weird thing. Right. I know it was the two of us and I believe it was my bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with TV by Design... That project, too, in many ways, like it, you know, when you do archival work, you have things on hold that you, one day I'll look at this. So, again, in graduate school, I had found all of these beautiful TV, you know, title art designs that I just, you know, been writing about. But um, that really inspired me to think about, you know, the kind of art practices around TV, but it didn't really fit into my earlier work. And then I thought... You know, I really want to think more about what this art world practices were around TV because it doesn't seem right to say that TV and the world of fine art were disconnected since so many people were practicing forms of modernism in early TV through graphic design, through set design, through a whole set of things that brought modernism onto the screen. Mm -hmm. So that became, you know, the kind of core of the TV and and design book. And then again, it's like hunches. I thought, you know, like I needed some institutional landmarks to kind of show that it wasn't just kind of this artist over here or that artist over here. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'll just go to MoMA and see if they had any interest in TV in this early period. And then like I go in there and the archivist says, oh yeah, we have this 40 boxes and no one's ever looked at them. Yeah. That's amazing. And I love how there's all these kind of moments of serendipity of, like, the low shelf with the it's, women's magazines. Like, you know, you have to kind of, like, take crazy hunches in a way. Like, if you want to find things that maybe haven't been written about before. I mean, that trip could have just wound up being useless. Mm-hmm. But I had known that they had done a TV festival in 63. So I knew that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought, well, were they doing anything in the 50s? So. And um, some of the, like, the work of the CBS designer, William William Golden, I think was mm-hmm. his name, that you write a lot about in that book. Is that something that, did you know about that and then sought yeah, out his papers? Yeah, because that was, that was the that publicity art and title art stuff. And mm-hmm. some people in graphic design had written about him. But then I kind of wanted to know more about his specific kind of relation to CBS and all of that. And so it turned out that the... Rochester Institute of Technology had his papers and they actually told me not to come because they said the boxes were just filled with pictures of his kittens giving birth and it would be a waste of my time. <laughs> so I went there anyway. And and there were a lot of pictures of his kittens giving birth, but there were also all these like 
things he wrote about CBS and their policies about design, and there were all of his, you know, original mock-ups. Wow. That's so telling of what it's like to do television history that nobody thinks it's significant. Yeah, they're like in waste bins of, right. Right. And then you're like, no, this is a treasure. This is, we need this. That's great. Um, So maybe let's talk a little bit more about archives and how you've made various archival discoveries over the course of your career. Um, Are there strategies that you've used that have helped you to find these rich things? Or where, what is your method or path to going into an archive? You know, I wish I could say, because I don't really know. (laughs) It's just like those kind of things where you're like, you find kind of a kernel of something and you kind of, uh, well, nobody thinks this, but maybe it's there, so I'll Mm -hmm. go check. Or you go to an archive and something really surprises you that you weren't looking for. But I mean, you know, I think one one method, if we're talking about, like, I could think that there's methods here is trying to bring like really disparate archives into connection with one another. So you never just go to an archive that's like, say you want to you know, know about TV in the 50s and you go to UCLA and just look at all their programs. Well, you'll, you know, you'll find things, but it's more interesting to think, well, then maybe I'll also go to MoMA or to this other completely different kind of archive and see if I can make connections that make any sense or tell us about some kind of alternative history that mm-hmm. you wouldn't get if you just kind of followed the path of programming or, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? When I first went to the Library of Congress, they didn't have any, you know, thing, but they got like a whole shipment of the Eames work on TV. So, I mean, I went there and it's really amazing because it, it was like boxes that no one had gone through and the archivist, the head archivist there was really nice and let me go through it before she finished cataloging it. So I don't know. Those kind of, it's really colonialist, but those kind of first discoveries that you touch the paper first, you're like a historical nerd like you and I. It's really great. Yeah. No, there's always a thrill of that. It's ridiculous. No one has ever looked at this before. I know. (laughs) I'm the first to touch it. So, how does the your more recent work on your TV snapshots project fit into this? Because that also seems to be about mining untouched archives. Well, I was originally, I had this grant to write about the Smart House thing, which I'm still trying to write about. But then, like, one of the chapters that I had proposed was about, you know, people taking pictures of themselves. I had this image of myself as a little girl when I was writing Make Room for TV, and the image was a snapshot of me curtsying in front of my TV set. And so at that time, I wondered, I really was hoping to find more like it. It seemed like a great last chapter, but I couldn't find any. So maybe around 2011, I was in a thrift store and I noticed them and they were being sold for pretty much money, like $10. And I thought, I guess there's a vintage market for these now. And so I decided to go onto eBay. And yeah, that's a case where the internet's been really important because eBay has, like, millions of them. I've collected about 5,000 now. and um, But there are also online blogs and share sites and curators who curate these things, which makes it really interesting because there's all this kind of popular memory around these photographs online. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's a case where the question of the digital archive for TV history is really quite interesting and poses a lot of questions, you know, that I'm writing about and find 
challenging. Mm -hmm. So it seems like this is the project is a way to talk about the kind of lived everyday experience of TV. I, it seems kind of in a different way than you were able to in Make Room for TV. Because there you're going through the magazines yeah. and the programming to be able to talk because about that. Because those are like these, you know, idealized mass market images of um, television and expert dialogues on them from, you know, women's columns. But the snapshots are obviously, you know, this is where the Saul Worth thing I talked about earlier. They're, you know, everyday people taking photographs of themselves and they're pictures of people posing in front of their TV sets. But they're also just kind of shots where TV is in the frame and gives you a kind of mise-en-scene of ordinary life with TV. So it's, I don't think they're better documents than the mass market magazines. They're just kind of different clues and they, you know, are made with by people with their own cameras and, you know, they follow conventions of snapshot photography they're not like indexical windows onto a world right there you know they're highly conventionalized mm -hmm. people always look happy they're you know but nevertheless they do kind of I I've one of the things that I really found was that like rather than the kind of mass market images of people sitting around a tv set in a family circle like you'd see in the ads most of the time in these photographs people are posing in front of the set and they're the main attraction not not the TV, right? Mm -hmm. And they also show you kind of how people set up their rooms for TV, how TV becomes a kind of backdrop for social life in the home and not the main focus of attention. Mm -hmm. So that really interested me because, you know, it, it kind of shows us how people live with TV. And it also kind of shows us how there's never just kind of one media technology. It's this kind of companion technologies of the... 50s snapshot Kodak camera and the television set together that create this kind of new mediatized space of the home that people can kind of self-represent through. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it it's shows us this whole network of technologies and objects and people that create this kind of media space of post-war domestic life. The lived-inness or liveliness of television versus the liveness on screen. <laughs> oh, I like that. That's yeah. good. Um, yeah, and it's it's like you say. I think it's, it's it offers this different dimension of the story that you've been able to tell in other ways. I mean, the other thing about it that I've found fascinating, but it's very difficult for me, um, is the fact that one of the things that these photographs have revealed is this huge kind of African-American archive, right? So there's many black families posing with their TVs. And there are, it is, you know, there's a lot of different ethnicities posing with their TVs, but it's mostly black and white, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, that's been really challenging because, you know, as opposed to kind of doing like a history of civil rights on TV, which is challenging, of course, but you know, this is like the intimate spaces of everyday life. And as a white woman, I just don't have access to those intimate mm -hmm. memories, right? So some of it comes from talking with colleagues who did live in black families, right? And some of it's been really, really reading a lot of literature on uh, African-American snapshot photography and the history of African-American homes. And so that's been like really interesting. But I think it does provide a different perspective since the mass magazine stuff and most of what we know about the visual history of TV is so, so much about whiteness. Mm -hmm. So even if it's limited as to what I could say, I feel like I've been able to kind of think through a whole other dimension in that way. Yeah, absolutely. That's not that's not a picture of 
everyday life that you get from the mainstream sources. Not at all. And it, yeah. they're also really international in scope. Mm-hmm. And so why are why why is that like a universal thing people do with their TV sets <laughs> in Japan and Sweden and Israel and South America? You know, like it's just amazing. Maybe let's do one more sort of thinking back question to to kind of wrap things up. When you think back to your childhood and going out to TV repair jobs and things like that, and just thinking about just watching TV, are there moments that speak to you as particularly significant? You talked about sort of seeing the homes. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, watch content as well, what you were watching that yeah. might have been. I do love TV. <laughs> so I'm glad we got that in. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know. I really love crappy TV. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not going to be very edifying, <laughs> like Batman as a child, oh, right, yeah. which then I wrote about, obviously, but um, Dark Shadows, which we've talked about before, soap operas, which you're working on, mm-hmm. and in a great project. You know, so I even love bad CBS sitcoms, like Two and a Half Men, as I told you earlier. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, but I... I I guess, you know, some of the series that now are more canonical and considered art TV I love also, like Mad Men mm-hmm. or Breaking Bad or The Sopranos. Who wouldn't love those series? So, right. you know, but I also, like, you know, love cinema. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that if you're going to be in this field, you should love the... Love the object. The media. Yeah. <laughs> the text, yeah. you know. Right. It is interesting, though, because you hear a lot of people whose careers are more identified with film would talk about early, you know, film influences in a way that I haven't heard you say. Maybe you do have those early film influences that were very very powerful for you as well. I mean, like so many people in film studies, I, you know, I'm interested in silent film. I, you know, love various canonical directors. As I said, I started thinking I was going to work on German cinema. So, yeah, I mean, and I'm not sure the kind of cinephile thing translates to TV in the same exact way. I don't think it does, but, you know, hearing those... I love TV better, though. I gotta say. I love TV better. Well, then I've done my work here today. (laughs) (laughs) That's really... That's that's fun to hear. Um, And, yeah, I think loving loving all these objects is is worthwhile, but there's not a lot of people who would say, I love TV better and mean Batman from the 1960s, so they might mean... There are are other people, clearly, but But, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Um, But one can love them all. Yes. Yes. All my children. Right, all my children. You can love all your children. Thank you for thank you for putting that together, Chris. Yeah, it was really fun to listen to, and I, and I do encourage you to listen to the whole version uh, on the SEMS Field Notes website. You'll get to hear her thoughts about the state of TV studies, and then also I was really excited to hear the Betty Girl Engineer origin story of how that became part of academia. Oh, you know, anyone who's run through Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin's program has taught TV history or taken it. Betty Girl Engineer is like canonical text. And so it comes up. Lynn Spiegel talks about how that became part of what we all teach now. It's amazing how those little fragments become 
iconic, right? Because somebody grabs a hold of it and gets a has an opportunity to share it, and and all of a sudden it becomes this kind of ur text of the field. Yeah, and it's it's so great. If you haven't, uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's an episode of Father Knows Best called Betty Girl Engineer. I'm pretty sure it's probably on YouTube. At, at the very least, like Hulu, whoever has Father Knows Best has it. Highly, highly, highly recommend it. Great stuff. Um, and just one quick note that I wanted to comment, you know, kind of rope things back to to things I'm up to here in London. I loved when Spiegel's talking about her uh, early days and in graduate school and the dissertation and that kind of question like, well, how do you come up with a dissertation topic and, and what do you do? And I was reflecting a bit on that because I'm one thing I'm working on in London is trying to write a book proposal for my second book. My first book was my dissertation and not to say in any way, any of that was easy, but there's sort of a path, right? When you're in grad school and you have a path and you mm -hmm. have mentors, and then there is a path from the disc to book. And now, and it's been a long time, I'm not going to say how long, you can Google the copyright, um, how long it's been since that first book. And it's high time I get on the second one, but I'm running into that question. I have a topic, but just that idea of like, how do you start? I'm not in classes. I'm not writing papers for, know. you know, professors. It's, it's a difficult challenge that I'm trying to confront now. So I just want to throw that out. That's another thing people can track over my time in London. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about how the book proposal is going. Oh, no pressure. Right. Well, I think I need that pressure. I think that's what I've, I've kind of kept thinking like, oh, I'll start that then. And uh, it's actually about British TV partly. And so no more excuses. I'm in London. I'm soaking up the, you know, British TV, reading Radio Times, all of it. No more excuses. So, so I am putting public pressure on myself to get this done. Okay. You're, you're here, here first. At yeah, exactly. Here it is. Um, <laughs> I guess. So now we, now we'll have like a, like a public advisor conversation every 30 days or so. We get together for Acmedia, and you can come in, sit down, and be like, so yeah. how's that proposal coming? You really want that? I love that. <laughs> oh, well, God. you know, I probably need it. If, uh, you know, that sounds as miserable as grad school was, and I don't have grad school anymore, so I, that maybe that's what I need, something super miserable and oh, painful. Man. So I'll just go over go. off to the side and vomit for you, so okay. kind of take All care right, of that good. part. We're really encouraging our listeners to, to tune back in for the next episode, yeah. aren't we? Yeah. Um, it's going to be a, a completely synesthetic uh, Acmedia experience in 70 mm -hmm. millimeter with uh, eyes over, you know, hands over our eyes. Hands over eyes and have to plug your ears yeah. every so often, especially if you have that, you know, when you hear someone vomit that makes you feel like you're vomiting, you're going to have to have that going too. Oh boy. I guess it is what summer. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Maybe we should end this now. All right. Uh, it sounds like you're having quite the experience there, and I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm a little bit jealous. I, I feel incredible privilege. It's an amazing experience, and, and I thank Notre Dame and London for being so generous to me. All right. Well, we're looking forward to further updates. You'll have them. On, both on London and on Illinois travel information and, uh, and on your proposal. Acomedia is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the Department of Communication at Denison University. And we are also grateful to SCMS for uh, a grant that they uh, give us to help support what we're doing here. We want to encourage you to follow up on the SCMS field notes, where, which are available on the SCMS website, uh, cmstudies.org. And we will also put a link to the uh, field notes on our own website, info at aca-media.org. Man, that's coming Nailed out it. so... Wow! 
Wow. Nailed it. That's good. That's good. Um, also, we're grateful to Bill Kirkpatrick and Angelo Restivo for taking us back uh, to, to revisit that conversation, as well as to Elena Levine and Lynn Spiegel. And everyone at the Field Notes team. Congratulations to them. They won a SCMS award this they year sure for did. their great effort. And uh, Heidi Wasson for the incredible work she does with Field Notes. So thank you so much to her and her whole team. And thank you to uh, Joel Neville Anderson at University of Rochester and Stephanie Brown at University of Illinois for their ongoing assistance uh, with, to us. None of this would be possible without the golden years of Todd Thompson, uh, making it all make sense and sound like uh, anti-aircraft fire instead of clumsy errors on our part. That's beautiful. Yeah. All right, so we'll uh, you'll hear from us next month. At least I hope you'll be back. I hope this was didn't turn anyone away to never want to hear us again. What will happen with Chris's book proposal? Oh, God, what did I do? Can we cut that part out? <laughs> You're in trouble. Uh, we certainly can. All right. All right. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the summer. Bye. <laughs>